Well, good morning. We'll go ahead and uh, get started. Okay, well, welcome. We have been, over the past few weeks, we've been talking about anthropology. What's anthropology? Study of mankind. And then we went into a doctrine of sin. What's that called? Anybody remember that? Hamartiology. Hamartia is the Greek word for sins. The study of sin, hamartiology. And, uh, and then now we're moving into a section where we're seeing what is God's response to sin. And, uh, and so kind of a broad umbrella. It's called soteriology, soteros. Uh, soteros is uh, the Greek word for salvation. So this is the doctrine of salvation. This is what God does uh, in response to, uh, to sin. And, uh, and so we'll kind of start today with the storyline of Scripture and then uh, move into uh, just the individual stories of Scripture that show us this idea of covenants. And, uh, and so over the next few weeks, we'll look at the covenant that God makes with Adam, the covenant that God makes with Noah, the covenant God makes with, uh, with David, and, uh, and so forth. And so that's where we're going. But today, what we want to do is give more of a big picture, sort of a, a narratival arc of the entire Scripture through this lens of, uh, of the kingdom. And so we've talked about this before, but this is probably the most important thing that we can talk about because as we'll see, the kingdom is the gospel. So if you ever ask, why are they always talking about kingdom? Why do, they, why do we do this? Uh, we've done this now, I think, three times here in theological equipping, and we mention it in sermons. Why is it that we do that? That's like asking, why are they always talking about Jesus? This is the most fundamental storyline of Scripture, and so uh, we want to take time to uh, renew our minds in this understanding. And so this is, if you look at uh, the New Testament, you look at the Gospels, and if I were to ask you, what is it that Jesus talks about more than anything else? What is it that Jesus talks about more than anything else? If you didn't know that we were talking about kingdom today... Uh, just by context clues, you can probably guess the answer is kingdom, because that's the title of the lesson. But if you didn't know that, you might say something like, well, he talks about grace. He talks about mercy. He talks about love. Or maybe he talks about sin or hell or judgment or money or whatever it is that you think that he talks about the most. And he talks about all those things quite a bit, but those are not the thing that he talks about the most what Jesus talks about more than anything else is this concept of the kingdom. The Greek word for kingdom occurs uh, over a hundred times, 100 times in the Gospels, and the word king occurs another 50 times. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. But it's sometimes so ubiquitous uh, that it, it can often be kind of overlooked by us. It's something that we kind of take for granted. It's kind of like air or oxygen or something like that. It's everywhere around us, and yet uh, most of the time we don't notice that it's there because it's just a part of us. And so likewise, if you read the story of Jesus, the story of the Gospels, you might miss just how prevalent this concept is that kingdom saturates the entire New Testament so what I want to do is I want to read through this list of just a few places. Uh, there are dozens and dozens of other passages that we could, uh, we could look at, but, but just a few places from the uh, Gospels that talk about this concept of, uh, of the kingdom. Uh, and so I know that you can read, you have all of these in your notes, but I think hearing them also is helpful. So just a kind of a, a splattering of uh, text on the kingdom from the Gospels. Matthew 5.3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 6, 9 through 10. This is part of the Lord's prayer. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If that's a pattern for our prayer, then every one of our prayers is in some sense kingdom language, a longing for kingdom, a yearning, a craving for God's kingdom to come. Matthew 13 Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. Going up one, Matthew 6, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The kingdom of heaven, from Matthew 13, is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. 
Moving out of the book of Matthew into Mark, Mark 10, 14 through 15. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Luke seven twenty eight. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he Luke 9, 62, Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Luke 12, 32, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Luke 17, 20 through 21, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Luke twenty two fifteen through 16. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. John 3, 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And John eighteen thirty six. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. So this idea of a kingdom is a big deal to Jesus. And of course, it would be a big deal to Jesus because Jesus is the king. And the king is constantly talking about his kingdom. In fact, you could sum up the entire gospel as the message of the kingdom. Those things are inseparable in Jesus's mind. In Jesus' mind, the gospel is the kingdom. The kingdom is the gospel. There is no gospel apart from the kingdom. Consider Mark 1.14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. He's proclaiming the gospel. What does he say? And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Kingdom gospel. They're overlapping concepts. They're synonymous in Jesus's mind. Matthew 4, 23, and he went, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel. Which gospel? The gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Matthew 9, 35, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So the gospel is the good news of this story, the story of the kingdom, because the gospel is the story of Jesus, and Jesus is the king. Those aren't separate concepts. For Jesus, the gospel is the kingdom, the kingdom is the gospel. If someone asks you what the gospel is, it needs to have this sort of language of the kingdom. So what is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? Graham's Gold, Graham Goldworthy said, uh, that was a kind of a tongue twister for me, said it's God's people in God's place under God's rule. God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's a good definition of the kingdom. A little simpler one is just the reign and rule of God. The kingdom is the reign and rule of God. Here's the easiest way to think about it. We've talked about this before. What would it be like? What would it be like? Imagine a world in which there is no opposition to God's rule. Kind of this realm of shalom, of peace. A time and a place even better than, uh, the, than the Garden of Eden. Just this world in which there is no opposition whatsoever to God's rule and to uh, God's reign. Think of something like that, and that's what the kingdom is. The kingdom is God reigning without any obstacle, without any interruption, without any distraction, without any impediment, without any threat or anything uh, like that. So biblically, you have this idea of two different kind of realms, two different dominions or uh, spheres. You have uh, heaven and you have earth. You have heaven and uh, you have earth. Obviously, uh, originally, you don't have earth. God creates earth. There is this idea of heaven, though, that is eternal. That's just the dwelling place of God. And then God creates the earth, and God and man dwell together. But because of sin, which we've been talking about over the past few weeks uh, in theological equipping, and we've been talking for the past, like, 
two months or something like that in our sermons, uh, because of the effect of sin, there is this division. No longer can uh, God, can heaven and earth coexist because of this presence of sin. There is this division, there is this separation uh, that occurs. And yet, there are these places where uh, heaven and earth kind of overlap, if you will. There are these uh, particular places that are almost like portals in which there is this overlap between heaven and earth. And so we see that in, uh, in the garden where uh, God is walking with mankind, but because of sin, there is this separation. And so we see these little places where heaven and earth overlap again. You see that in the tabernacle. Israel in the wilderness, there's this tabernacle where God is dwelling, tabernacling among Israel. You see it in the temple, a place where God dwells there. And then you see it most fully in Jesus, who is uh, the Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. Jesus is our temple. Jesus is the place where heaven and earth uh, overlap. And so you see the separation that occurs, but there are these little portals, there are these little places where heaven and earth are going to overlap uh, again. And so uh, those are places typically associated with sacrifice, right? Because of the uncleanness of earth, because of the uncleanness of the created realm, there cannot be this overlap without cleanness. And so all of these places are places where there is some sort of sacrifice, the temple or Jesus, there's some sort of sacrifice associated with it. And we're moving toward a day when, uh, when the, uh, the heavens will come down and join with the new earth and we'll have new heavens and uh, a, a new earth. And so what I want to do is I want to kind of look at the, the storyline of Scripture and see this concept of the kingdom as it plays out uh, from Genesis all the way through Revelation. That sound good? Ready? We're going to go kind of quickly through this. So we'll start uh, with uh, the beginning. We'll start in Genesis. And uh, Genesis really has a lot of kingdom language. It's just more, uh, rather than being explicit, like the Gospels just say the word kingdom over and over and over and over again, uh, that's not the way oftentimes you're going to see it throughout uh, the Old Testament. Instead, it's going to be allusions or it's going to be the concept of kingdom without actually using the language. The story starts with God, and the way it portrays him, if you're reading this through the lens of a uh, kind of the ancient Near East, if you're reading this through a lens of ancient Judaism, you would see these connotations, this illusion, this imagery of God as being a king. One of the first things that he does is he creates a garden. He creates a garden. And, uh, and this was a kingly role. This is something that kings do. So uh, you have Nebuchadnezzar, and he builds the hanging gardens of Babylon. Anyone ever heard of that? One of the seven ancient wonders, of the, or seven wonders of the ancient world. And so uh, Nebuchadnezzar builds uh, these gardens. And kind of the idea is, look at the way that I can manipulate nature. Look at the way that my dominion can be exercised. That's what God does. He creates this world, and then he creates this garden in which things are flourishing, and there's beauty, and there's order uh, instead of chaos and all of that kind of stuff. And so God creates a garden, uh, and that shows this sort of uh, king image, and God is dwelling among his people in a garden. Now, fast forward for a second. We'll come back, but fast forward a second to uh, Solomon and Solomon builds something in particular. What is Solomon known for building? Solomon builds a temple. And this temple has decor. It's decorated. And part of the decoration is these ornate flowers and trees and all of this in the imagery. There's like the image of a, a, a waters flowing through it, which reminds you of what? The garden. It reminds you of the Garden of Eden. Again, this place where God is going to dwell among his people. God dwells among his people. They're in a garden image in the temple. If we were to fast forward all the way to Revelation 21 through 22, there's a tree of life. It's flowing through uh, this sort of renewed creation. Again, God is dwelling among his people in a garden, which has now been cultivated and turned into uh, a city. Back to Genesis, though, God creates this garden and he looks over the garden. He views his empire and he says, it's good. It's all good. It's very good. 
And oftentimes, in the ancient Near East, when kings would build gardens, they would, uh, they would build some sort of monument or a statue, or they'd take an obelisk or something like that, and they'd put that there so that when you're walking through the garden and you wonder to yourself, who did all of this? Who's, who's the one who is so glorious that they could manipulate nature like this and create all of these topiaries and that kind of stuff? Who is this? And there would be a statue in the middle of it, and that statue would have kind of the image of the king on it. And underneath it would say the name of the king, Nebuchadnezzar, or whoever it might have been. And so you go and you say, okay, I know because of this image that this king dwells here, and that's what God does. He creates a garden, and he puts an image of himself in it, not a statue, not an obelisk, not a monument. He creates mankind so that whenever we see mankind, we would say, Yahweh rules here. Yahweh is the king. Yahweh is the one whose uh, dominion is exercised in this uh, sphere. And, uh, And so he creates mankind and he says that they are created in his image. And even that idea of God creating mankind in his image, even the idea of the way that we bear his image is that we rule and reign, that we exercise uh, dominion. That's one of the primary meanings of the image of God, that we rule in his place as his vice regents or as, as his ambassadors. And he gives this command, and he says, uh, God blesses them, Genesis one twenty eight. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then listen to this, and subdue it and have dominion. Subdue it the way that I have subdued nature and created this garden and have dominion. Rule over it, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This kingdom sort of language. God is a king and he's appointed mankind to be kind of his vice regents, little princes or something like that. So mankind is this image or this icon, or even the word that's often used there is an idol, not in the negative sense, but an idol created by God to represent him rather than an obelisk or a statue or a painting or whatever. So every time you see a human, the idea is that you are to be reminded, Yahweh rules here. God rules here. God reigns here. This is a sign. We are signs of his sovereignty, of his rule, of his kingdom. But obviously there's sedition that occurs in the garden. There's this rebellion that takes place on this cosmic level, angelic rebellion and human rebellion. Zach talked a little bit about that in Amartiology Part 1. Things go really badly because kingdoms tend to go where their kings tend to go. That's why if you're reading the history of, uh, of Israel, particularly in the northern kingdom, uh, there is just constant uh, wicked kings, and so the, uh, the kingdom uh, of the, the north uh, continues to get more wicked. And then in uh, the southern kingdom, in Judah, you're going to see occasionally there's a good king, occasionally there's a bad king. As the, there's the good king, the nation tends to flourish and prosper. As there's a bad king, the nation tends to suffer. Well, mankind has chosen in our rebellion, we've chosen to align ourselves uh, with Satan, and he's a bad king. He's an evil king. He's a wicked king. And so as a result, the world is populated by chaos and destruction and death and all of these sorts of things and uh, division and suffering. And you see how quickly, even in the narrative of Scripture, how quickly things begin to unravel. Within one generation, uh, there's murder. Soon there's sexual morality, more murder, injustice, greed, and oppression. And in the midst of all of this darkness, all of this darkness that shows kind of what the kingdom of, uh, of man or the kingdom of Satan looks like, in the midst of all of this darkness, there's this little flash of light. Just like there's only darkness in Genesis 1 and then God speaks light into existence, so there's only darkness in all of the world and God speaks a little flash, a little glimmer of light into existence. He comes to this moon worshiper from Ur named uh, Abram, later changed to Abraham, and he promises something. He promises something that's really interesting because Galatians calls it the gospel. When, uh, when Paul is speaking back on this, uh, he calls this thing the gospel. Abraham wasn't promised justification by faith. He wasn't promised substitutionary atonement, although those are parts of the gospel. What he's promised is this idea that kings shall come forth from your body. All in you, all the nations of the earth shall be 
uh, bless. Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then this promise is passed down from generation to generation. We'll see as we talk about covenants how that kind of works and the different nuances of that um, over the next few weeks. But in Genesis 35, God appears to uh, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, and God says to him at, uh, at Bethel, he says, I am God Almighty, Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. This promise, this Abrahamic promise, this promise that's given to Israel is a promise of kingdom. Not only the kingdom of Israel, though, in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. There is a more, much more universal uh, tint to it than we often think. And then uh, one of uh, Jacob's children, one of Israel's children, Judah, it's said of him in Gen- Genesis 49, Judah, your brother shall praise you and your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. You stoop down. He crouched as a lion and a lioness who dares rouse him. Listen to this. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. This promise, again, of kingdom. So you have Abraham and you have all of his descendants fitting in this story of kingdom, not just the kingdom of Israel, but this universal kingdom. In this, through this kingdom of Israel, there's going to be a blessing uh, of this universal kingdom that is the kingdom of God. We've talked about this before. So there's this promise for Israel, and Israel is to uh, essentially do what God commands mankind to do. In the garden, man, uh, God commands mankind to go forth, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. And so God basically gives the same sort of command to Israel to be a light to the nation, to subdue the earth, to be fruitful and to multiply, and sends them out into the world uh, in order to be sort of this evangelistic uh, force for Yahweh's goodness and, uh, and grace and mercy. But we've talked about this before. It's kind of like Israel is, uh, is the Coast Guard, and there's a ship that's lost at sea, uh, and instead of saving mankind, Israel goes and they get lost themselves. And so they're caught in this constant uh, cycle and spiral of, uh, of slavery to uh, other, uh, other gods and other kings. And, uh, and so we see that personified even in the story that we takes place in the Exodus. So after Israel has, uh, has uh, been there in, uh, in Egypt for uh, hundreds of years, uh, they're eventually a slave to this wicked king. Uh, And again, whenever you are under a wicked king, there's suffering that takes place. There's not flourishing. There's not thriving. There's not prosperity and glory and beauty and all these sorts of things. So Israel's enslaved to this wicked king, and they suffer the result until, again, God speaks this little flicker of light into the darkness. That's what we see constantly, this image throughout the Scripture. Constantly there's darkness, and God speaks light which we get all the way to the New Testament, and we see Jesus' light shining in the darkness. You'll see this theme throughout the Bible in the garden to Abraham, in the midst of the Exodus, Jesus, all of these uh, sorts of things. So Exodus establishes this idea of God's sovereignty that he rescues uh, Israel and thus purchases the right to rule and reign among them, and he's defeated the enemies of his kingdom And how does he do that? Because he kills the most powerful king in all the world. At that time, the most powerful king in all the the known world, Pharaoh, in all of his glory and all of his splendor, and God drowns them there in the sea. And he judges all the gods of Egypt, all the things that Egypt relies upon. Each plague, if you study the plagues there in uh, the book of Exodus, each plague kind of corresponds to some Egyptian god, all the way from uh, the sun god, all the way up to the firstborn of Pharaoh himself, because Pharaoh is seen uh, to be a god. So God judges his enemies there, and when he's bringing them into the land, he says this in Deuteronomy 17, 
This is kind of a longer quote. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people uh, to return to Egypt. And then on and on we could go. But the idea there, again, is a kingdom that God is ruling and reigning, but there's also this promise that there's going to be a human mediator. There's going to be a human who's going to sit on the throne uh, of Israel. So you have, in a sense, God is ruling, and in a sense, this man is ruling. And you won't see the resolution of those things until Jesus, who is the combination of both God and man ruling for Israel. God in the flesh, and then also Israel personified, the perfect Jew, the true Jew, Jesus Christ. So you have to see this combination. Uh, but uh, Israel enters into the land, and things aren't going swimmingly. There is, they fail to drive out the nations completely. And so throughout the book of Judges, you see this ongoing pattern of forgetting and forsaking Yahweh. And what's interesting is in order, kind of as a literary device to help you read the book of Judges and understand what's happening here, why is Israel suffering? Why is there no prosperity? There is this constant refrain throughout the book of, uh, of Judges. Judges 17.6, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges 18.1, in those days, there was no king of Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. Judges 19, in those days, there was no king in Israel. And the final verse of the book, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Again, over and over and over, you see this phrase, in those days, there was no king. And the idea that we're supposed to see there is with the absence of a monarchy, with the absence of a good ruler, there is not democracy, there's anarchy. Biblically, those are the only two things. There's either God reigning or there's just chaos. There's anarchy, and that's what we see throughout the book of Judges. They cry out for deliverance, and someone delivers them and judges Israel for a period of 10 years or 20 years or 40 years, and there's peace, and there's prosperity, and Israel begins to flourish, and then again, they reject Yahweh. They reject their king. They rebel against him, and there is chaos that results from it. And they cry out again. You see this pattern over and over. And why does this pattern play out? Because in those days, there was no king in Israel. But it's not merely having a king that's going to be helpful, because they could have had a bad king, as is, is exemplified throughout the history of Israel. So it's not merely having a king that matters. It's having the right king. And so what you see throughout the, uh, the Old Testament historical books, First uh, and Second Samuels and the Chronicles and so forth, you see this pattern of there, there being these rebellious and wicked kings. In First Samuel chapter 8, Israel demands a king, and Yahweh describes that in verse 7, 1 Samuel 8, 7, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So they cry out for a king, not in order that they might be more faithful, but they cry out for a king because they want to be like the other nations. They don't want to look different. They kind of are feeling this sort of national peer pressure to be like all the nations around them. And so they want another king. Uh, and, uh, and Yahweh says, in effect, what you're doing is you're rejecting me. I am your king. But he gives them what they want, and obviously the, the first choice there uh, of Saul is a wicked king, and so the kingdom suffers as a result of it. And so you see this pattern throughout these uh, few books there of uh, Old Testament history of the increasing corruption of the kingdom. You have kind of this high point uh, with David and then to some degree with Solomon, but even with Solomon you see cracks there as some of the things in Deuteronomy 17 where it says a king or Deuteronomy whatever it was where it says this is what a king to do when you have a king he is not to acquire wives he's not to acquire all of these sorts of things and this is what we see uh, in Solomon's life it's already you see this crumbling of the kingdom but immediately after Solomon there is this division in the kingdom and you have the northern kingdom represented by 10 tribes of Israel and then you have the southern kingdom represented by Judah and uh, Benjamin as well but pretty much just comes to be known as 
uh, as Judah. And so you see this uh, division. And in the north, it's consistently evil. Every single king that is listed in the north, every single one of them worshipped another god. Every single one of them was wicked and evil and pagan. In the south, you have a bit of a mixture. Uh, You have some kings that are good, some kings that are uh, bad. We see the glory and the greatness, the flourishing that Israel experiences as kings follow uh, Yahweh. And then you see the destruction, the division, uh, the wickedness that takes place as kings forsake uh, Yahweh, all of the tragedy. And, uh, and so you also have this image in the midst of uh, these books. You have this image that David desires to build a house for Yahweh. Again, David desires to build this place where heaven and earth can overlap. Anybody remember what God says to David? He says, no, you can't build this for me, but I will do something. I will build a house for you. I will build a temple Myself, We see that ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, that God himself would build, uh, in a sense, God would build a place where heaven and earth are to overlap, a person in which heaven and earth are to overlap. You see this imagery of a kingdom throughout uh, the book of uh, the Psalms. We won't read all of these. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Psalm 10, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his hand. Psalm 22, for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over uh, the nations. Psalm 24, who is this king of glory? Psalm 29, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. Psalm 45, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom. Psalm 93, the Lord is a great God and a king above all gods. Psalm 103, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Psalm 110, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. 145, I will extol you, my God and king, and bless your name forever and ever. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known the children of man, your mighty deeds, and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. And on and on we could go. This is just, again, just a sample. We could take all of these away. Uh, and put another dozen here, and then take all of those away and put another dozen here, whether it's a reference to uh, an explicit reference to king or to kingdom or to dominion or to his throne or to God being enthroned or to his scepter or to his rule. On and on we could go. All of these different metaphors, all these different images that are all saying the same thing, that is Yahweh reigns. But we have this problem because Yahweh is reigning, and yet, there's also this earthly king. There's also this earthly king. And somehow, that gap has to be bridged, which we will eventually see in the Gospels. But in the prophets, instead, what we see is, uh, is this image that is given. The, the prophets are speaking because the, the, the nation is wicked, because the kings are wicked. As the king goes, so does the nation, and so the king follows, or the, the nation follows uh, the king in whether it's worshiping of Yahweh or worshiping of Baal or worshiping of uh, any other foreign god or whatever it might be. And so, just a sprinkling of this image from uh, the book of Isaiah in Isaiah six one. Notice here, kind of the subtle contrast that Isaiah is giving. Isaiah 6, 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So King Uzziah, this king whose name means uh, the Lord is my strength, what has he done? He's died. He's dead. He's in a grave. Meanwhile, where's Yahweh? He's sitting on his throne. He's still ruling. His rule never comes to an end. His rule is eternal. You see this contrast here. It's intended to be kind of a subtle jab. What is this earthly king compared to Yahweh, 
whose rule and reign is never disturbed by, uh, by death or whatever it might be. Later in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, for to us a child is born, we read this every Christmas, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So you see this prophecy that there is going to be one who is going to be born and he is going to somehow bridge this divide where there is a divine king and there is a human king. We're going to see there is going to be one in whom, uh, who meets both of those conditions, who is both God and man. You also see, in addition to these sort of uh, prophetic uh, utterances, you also see things that take place historically that help us see this imagery of kingdom and how that plays out. Isaiah 37, um, Hezekiah receives a letter. This is, uh, I think the Assyrians are uh, uh, going to come in and they're going to uh, demand basically that, uh, that Israel uh, surrender. And so Hezekiah re- receives a letter to that uh, to that effect, from the hand of the messengers, and he read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. Listen to what he prays. This is interesting. He's just gotten a letter from the king of the Assyrians saying, Surrender, submit, submit to my dominion, submit to my sovereignty. I am the sovereign over all of the world. Assyria at this point uh, is probably the, the powerhouse of the world, it's the major superpower. And, uh, and so he gets this letter, and this is what he prays. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. His prayers are specifically about this idea of kingdom. Sennacherib, the, the king of Assyria, what is he compared to you? So he, he calls upon God as his king. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into their fire. For there were no gods but the work of men's hand, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. So you see, not only is there this image of imagery of kingdom, but there's also this imagery of your kingdom. This kingdom of Israel is intended to be a blessing, a light for the nations. Save us in order that all the kingdoms would know that you are the king. It's not just this insular, self-centered prayer. It's this prayer for God's glory to be manifest to all of the nation. So you see this image of uh, kingdom throughout the prophets. Again, that was just from Isaiah. But the prophets also are prophesying of a day when there is going to be uh, a consummated kingdom. And in that consummated kingdom, all kinds of things are going to happen. There's going to be a reconstitution of Israel as they're scattered throughout the nations. The north is taken into Israel, uh, are taken into exile in Assyria. The southern kingdom is taken into exile into Babylon. There's going to be this prophecy that Israel is going to be reconstituted. Uh, they're going to be regathered into the land. We'll talk a little bit about that and how that works out historically and in covenants and those kinds of things over the next few weeks. Another uh, kind of uh, identity marker of this kingdom is that Gentiles are going to be coming. They're going to be flooding into the area to worship God. Sicknesses being cured, demons being cast out, God having a king on the throne of Israel, released from the slavery of pagan nations, sin being forgiven, the oppressed being stood up for, resurrection of the dead, judgment of evildoers. And this constitutes what the kingdom would look like. This is what the prophets are prophesying. One day there's going to be a day when all of these things will take place. This is what Israel is expecting. And then in the midst of this, everything seems to go dark and silent for 400 years. So imagine you're a Jew living in the first century. You've just experienced this 400 years of silence. You're under Roman domination and persecution. You're under Roman propaganda. For years, for hundreds of years, your people have looked back upon these promises, these promises of a kingdom, and uh, reflected back on this Old Testament hope and longing. And you're waiting and you're praying and you're hoping and you're waiting and praying and hoping 
for a Mashiach, a Messiah, one who is, uh, in Greek, it's a Christ, a Christos, one who is anointed. And who's anointed? A prophet, a priest, and a king. These offices of the Old Testament, this king imagery is what you're waiting for. And when the king arrives, so does his kingdom. And what does the kingdom look like? All those things that we just described. Sin being forgiven, demons being cast out, the oppressed being stood up for, resurrection of the dead, all of these sorts of things. And then Jesus shows up. Again, a light speaks in the midst of this darkness of oppression and domination, all these sorts of things. And what does Jesus begin to proclaim? We read it before, but just a reminder, Mark 1, 14 through 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Matthew 4, 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So as a summary, Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, Matthew 9, 35, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So not only is he proclaiming the kingdom, he's demonstrating the kingdom. How? Because he is overruling the enemies of the kingdom, disease and affliction. He's casting out demons, enemies of the kingdom. All, everything that Jesus does, even uh, his resurrection is uh, an evidence of his kingdom because he's conquering the last enemy to be destroyed. The last enemy of the kingdom is death itself. So the gospel to Jesus is the kingdom. And then what does Jesus do? He heals the sick. He cleanses the uh, lepers. He dies for sin. He's resurrected. All of these things that the prophets have said would happen at the end of time when the kingdom is consummated begin to happen in the middle time in Jesus. They begin to happen. There's this unraveling that begins to take place there. And so all of the dozens or so passages that I mentioned where Jesus explicitly refers to the kingdom, and there's hundreds of others that we could have listed. So what's Jesus doing? He's establishing a kingdom. He's making all things new. He's putting all things to right. He's reversing the curse. He's beginning uh, the end. And so this is the idea that the kingdom is inaugurated in Jesus. It's inaugurated in Jesus, but it's not consummated. It's begun but it's not fully complete at this point. There's still sin. There's still death. There's still disease. There's still demonic oppression. There's still all of these sorts of things. So we see this idea of the kingdom as we, we uh, experience it now is what's called the already but not yet. There's a sense in which the kingdom is here. Jesus said that. The kingdom of God is in your midst. There's a sense in which it's already here. And there's a sense in which we're waiting for something. We're waiting for the full consummation. We're waiting for the resurrection. We're waiting for the day when no longer will there just be an overlap, but the uh, heaven and earth will coexist. They will completely overlap. So the unraveling of sin has begun. The decisive blow has been dealt, but uh, not all the dominoes have fallen yet. There was a, 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 a French theologian who came up with the idea that this is similar to, uh, we've given this illustration before, this is similar to in World War II, you have uh, D-Day and then you have V-Day. The moment that D-Day occurs, the war has been won. Uh, in, uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, the war has already been won. Germany can no longer survive once D-Day has occurred there in Normandy. Uh, but it's not for months later that there is actually the final victory, V-Day, uh, that occurs. And uh, so I think it's something like a year later. That's the image there, that everything that needs to happen has already happened because the kingdom has been inaugurated in Jesus Christ. But there, we are awaiting the consummation. The enemy has already been dealt the death blow. He cannot recover. He cannot survive. And yet we're still waiting for his final Judgment, And we see hints of that in the book of Revelation where God's enemies are judged. Kind of the theme of Revelation, as the world is erupting in chaos, this entire time God is sitting up in heaven completely undisturbed. He's not threatened by any of the assaults of mankind. He's not in any way impeded in his sovereignty. Uh, th those things are not an obstacle to his rule and reign. So while things on earth are chaotic, Things up in heaven are orderly. That's the image there. And God's enemies are judged, and there's, there's this promise of a new heavens and a new earth. And what happens there in Revelation 21 through 22 is you see a picture of that. And that picture is the kingdom. Again, 
The kingdom is this idea of imagine a world in which there is no opposition whatsoever to God's rule and to God's reign. There's no enemies whatsoever. There's no disease. There's no crying. There's no sorrow. There's no death. None of these sorts of things. And that's the image that we get in Revelation 21 through 22 when the kingdom is not merely inaugurated but consummated. No longer are we experiencing D-Day but V-Day. Uh, Hitler is dead. The world is free. So if this is true, if this is the story of the, the Scripture, if this is the story of the kingdom, if this kingdom story is the story of the gospel, the good news of the gospel that God has uh, given His Son for us, who is the ruler, uh, the one who is to reign over all things and will submit all of His enemies unto His self, uh, there are a number of of implications for this. And the first thing is that uh, if this is true, if this is true that the gospel is the kingdom, then to misunderstand the kingdom is to misunderstand the gospel. And there's two different ways that we can uh, distort this. So I want to end by just talking about this and uh, why it's important, and then I'll have Zach come up for some questions. Two different ways that we can kind of distort uh, the kingdom and thus distort the gospel. So we talked about the, uh, the kingdom is this already but not yet. And so one of the ways that we can distort the gospel is we emphasize the already to the extent or, or to the neglect of the not yet, or vice versa, although this is not as common. We could emphasize the not yet at the expense of, to the neglect of the already. We'll give some examples of that uh, in a moment. That's one of the ways, though, that we can distort the gospel by distorting the kingdom. We see that the kingdom is already but not yet, and we emphasize one to the neglect of the other. Uh, another way that we can do that is, uh, another way we can distort the gospel and the kingdom is uh, we either take the cosmological aspect of the kingdom, that is, this big picture, God is reconciling the world to himself. We either take that and we emphasize that, or we take this idea that the gospel has these personal connotations, individual salvation, and we emphasize that. And uh, both of those things are true, but whenever we emphasize one to the neglect of the other, you also see a distortion of the kingdom, where the kingdom really becomes kind of uh, about, uh, about God uh, or about us, but not how those things meet. And how most of us tend to think kind of the, the story of the gospel is how God has kind of entered into your story. And it's the exact opposite. Biblically, what we see, the gospel is the story of how you enter into God's uh, kingdom. It's about God and His kingdom. So let me give you a few examples, different ways that this gospel uh, kingdom distortion leads to a gospel distortion. Uh, one, of the, uh, one of the ways is what's called cheap grace theology. You ever heard of this? Cheap grace theology. Uh, uh, Bonhoeffer wrote about this in the middle of the 20th century, kind of the idea that you can have uh, the kingdom without suffering. You can have uh, kind of uh, grace without uh, any consequences, anything uh, like that. And we see that popularized today, kind of the image that you can have Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. Well, that doesn't make any sense if the entire message is the idea that Jesus is Lord. That is the gospel. To respond to the gospel is not responding to the message of salvation. It's responding to the message of the kingdom. So there is no way to respond to the message of the kingdom without receiving uh, the king. It's absurd to say that you can be a citizen of the kingdom without surrendering and submitting to the king. That's one example. Another example is the prosperity gospel. If you're familiar with the prosperity gospel, the idea that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and all of these sorts of things right here and now. What have they done? It's called an overrealized eschatology. Eschatology is the study of end times. They've overrealized it. They've reached into the future and tried to take uh, something that God has promised in the future and apply it now. What they're doing is basically they're taking the not yet aspects of the kingdom and they're trying to bring that into the already. They're forgetting, they're trying to make the gospel entirely already, the kingdom entirely already, instead of an already but not yet. So has God promised you health? Yes, absolutely God has promised you health. In the resurrection, you will never know disease, you will never know affliction, you will never know any of those things, but has God promised that now? Not necessarily. So what prosperity gospel does is it takes all of God's promises that are true, these are real promises that God has made, and it tries to pull them into the now. They've forgotten the not yet and made everything already. 
Or the social gospel, the social gospel, what that does is it emphasizes this cosmological aspect and it tends to neglect the individual aspect. It emphasizes things like social oppression. It emphasizes uh, all of these sorts of things like poverty and illiteracy and these sorts of things which are hindrances to the kingdom. But it forgets that another major aspect, a major hindrance to the kingdom is sin. And so there, there is this sort of sense in which we can't uh, emphasize the, uh, the horizontal dimensions of the gospel without uh, also mentioning the, uh, the vertical dimensions of the gospel. And uh, so, why does this become really important for us? I want to end uh, with this. The reason that this is so important is because it rescues us from this really man-centered vision of the gospel. If the gospel for you is simply the story of how you came to be saved, then the gospel is basically just this sort of of get-out-of-jail-free card. And that's not the gospel. That's an aspect, that's a nuance of the gospel, but the gospel is a much bigger picture of how God is reconciling the world to himself. It's this grander scope than, uh, than just between you and Jesus. There's something much bigger, much more globally that takes place. And, uh, and so there, this is much more powerful. As you think about your marriage, think about the reality, not merely. So what we tend to do is when we tend to think of uh, our marriage and, uh, and how do we build a healthy, faithful, we tend to think of things like we've been forgiven of much, so we should forgive much, and these kinds of things, and that's good. But another message that will help your uh, marriage is the, the reality that God is on a throne, and He reigns, and He is your King, and He is commanding certain things of you. That then becomes the fuel for you to worship. That then becomes the fuel for you to uh, obey. As you see, not only does this take place in your marriage, but in your work, in your children, in your worship, all of these sorts of areas of life. Again, the kingdom is this bigger picture, and there's no little nuance that you experience that's not somehow under the sovereignty and the rule and reign of God. And so the, the hope is that the gospel for us is expanded. The more that we understand that the gospel is the message of the rule and reign of God, we would recognize the goal is for God to rule and reign over absolutely everything, which includes absolutely every aspect of our lives. So let me pray for us, and then Zach will come up. And we'll take whatever questions uh, you might have. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you are a, a king. You are a God who has always ruled and reigned. And we pray that uh, we would experience more of your rule and reign, that your will be done on uh, earth as it is in heaven. We're grateful that you have given us a king in King Jesus. And uh, his rule and reign is uh, beneficent, it's good, it's glorious, it's beautiful, it's right, it's true. And, uh, and so as uh, a king goes, so goes the nation. And because we are your people, we are citizens of your kingdom, you've promised us good because our king is good. And so help us to live in light of that rule and reign. May this message uh, inform uh, the way that we love our spouses, the way that we raise our kids, the way that we consider our schoolwork, the way that we consider our work our leisure time, all of these sorts of areas. Lord, there's no nuance of our life uh, that's somehow outside the sphere uh, of your sovereignty, Lord. And so give us grace to see how that applies. We pray these things because you are a good father and a good king. And so we pray in Jesus' name, amen.